Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray. And yeah, we didn't uh, run a show last week, so we've got a lot of news to catch up on today. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Adam Boileau and special guest co-host Dmitry Alperovich, who will be joining us for a portion of the podcast. And uh, then, of course, we will hear from this week's sponsor, Nucleus Security. Nucleus makes software that ingests and normalizes the outputs of vulnerability scanners, so uh, you can get all of that information in one place and try to make some sense of it. Uh, A few months ago, they inked a deal, uh, a partnership with Mandiant. So we'll be joined today by Nucleus co-founder Scott Kufer and Mandiant's Jared Semrau. Uh, It's Jared's job to understand which vulnerabilities are being used in the wild and by whom. Uh, So yeah, obviously the idea here is to be able to use Mandiant data in your nuclear setup to see what you need to patch super urgently instead of just relying on stuff like CVSS. Uh, That interview is pretty, you know, product promotion-y, but there's definitely some interesting aspects to it, like why a third-party Vuln scanner aggregator is doing a deal with Mandiant when the Vuln scanning companies themselves who rake in like something like a billion a year in combined revenue are just sort of ignoring these integrations, right? So there's some some interesting little uh, uh, facts in that uh, in that interview. That is this week's sponsor interview coming up after this week's news segment, which starts now. And uh, guys. I got to say, there's been a lot of action, and you know, as is typical when I take a week off, there's been a lot of action over the last couple of weeks, particularly in the uh, uh, ICS arena. Um, I, we're going to start off with this story about Ukraine uh, apparently foiling a Russian cyber attack that tried to shut down its energy grid. We'll start with you on this one, Dimitri, because I know it's something that you followed quite closely. You know, what, what's the basic uh, gist of this story? What happened? Well, uh, they're attributing this to Sandworm, of course, the guys that have been behind uh, 2015 and 2016 blackouts in Ukraine that were successful at turning off power, at least for a few hours uh, during those times, uh, affiliate with the GRU, of course, um, that particular adversary. And, you know, what's interesting here is that you have conflicting stories coming out of Ukraine. So the public story has been that they thwarted the adversary, they've not been able to achieve their objective. But then you had this alert that leaked to the press um, that the Ukrainians had shared with some of their uh, foreign partners that talks about the adversary actually getting to the OT network and managing to to shut off power to some of the substations in one region of Ukraine. And uh, you had on Twitter uh, the head of uh, Ukrainian cybersecurity, Viktor Zora, uh, saying that uh, they had made a big mistake by sharing that report with partners under TLP red conditions and uh, having that reports seen in the media. But unclear how successful that attack truly was. Obviously, anytime anyone gets to the OT side, it's a big deal. But the one thing that the Ukrainians are really, really good at, and you have to give them tremendous credit for it, is they're very rapid on restoration, whether it's on the IT side or the OT side. You nuke their systems, you nuke their networks, they rebuild them like no one I've ever seen. And you know, part of that is, of course, experience of eight years of watching wiper malware destroy your networks and and you get pretty good at that yeah i i saw actually in the in the sort of leaked report that you're referring to the leaked note uh they said that they were able to yeah get to a couple of substations or something and shut them down for a little while uh and they used the term yeah they were able to succeed in that you know in, in doing that but you and I have been having this conversation uh, most of the last few days, actually, about like what constitutes success in a campaign like this. And you know, my argument is you need to measure, and certainly this is something Tom Uren has been writing about in the Seriously Risky Business newsletter. Uh, you know, in order to judge whether something's successful or not, you kind of need to measure it against what the what the objective is. And it's really hard to imagine an objective here that this attack would have succeeded in achieving, right? Like, okay, you knocked out uh, a couple of, you know, you knocked out power to a few farms for a couple of hours, right? Like, does that constitute success? It's it's very hard to see that this was material. Let's put it that way. So, so, so you and I and Tom have disagreed on this because what my position on this is that we don't know what the Russians were trying to achieve, right? Maybe a temporary blackout and we don't know how long it lasted. Maybe it lasted an hour, maybe less. But maybe that was sufficient for them to execute some sort of tactical operation. We don't even know which region this occurred in. So it's hard for us to judge from the outside with the information we have whether it's successful or not. 
my point was that anytime anyone gets to OT side of the network and is able to do things like turn off the lights, that's a pretty troubling thing and uh, is an indication of some degree of success. And you have to put this in the overall context that the Russians are throwing sometimes the kitchen sink at their targets, right? Doing things like DDoS attacks and other things that, you know, don't achieve any sort of strategic impact, but they're designed to tie up adversary, uh, I mean, tie up the defender's uh, resources. They're designed to try to have a psychological impact as well. Um, so I, I, w- I would be hesitant to call it a failure simply because we don't know what they were trying to achieve. The reality is that uh, we, we are, of course, seeing a number of cyber activities being directed against Ukraine. So people that are saying, you know, where is the cyber war? Uh, sometimes are ignoring the real effects that are being launched, like Viasat malware that we've talked about, that you guys have talked about in the show a bunch of times, and like the recent Ukrainian hack. Um, but what we're not seeing, of course, is widespread cyber activity that uh, is tightly correlated to the kinetic actions, either airstrikes, artillery, or ground movements that are taking place. And, you know, as I've written uh, in uh, various uh, fora uh, in the past, I actually don't think that that's how you wage wars these days, that this is not about uh, very deeply integrated cyber and kinetic actions. That's actually really, really hard to pull off and uh, doesn't give you as much benefit as you might think. Uh, But it's about, you know, achieving sometimes tactical um, operational success that's hard to achieve kinetically. And the Viasat, I think, is a phenomenal example. If you can take out, with one cyber action, thousands of satellite modems in Ukraine and impede their ability to communicate and perhaps even operationally control some of the drones, as, as you've talked about, Patrick, you can't do that kinetically, right, uh, unless you track down every single satellite uh, operator and, and terminate them through kinetic action, which is not feasible. That's precisely where cyber can have an outsized effect. Uh, but, you know, things like turning off the lights, things like, uh, you know, even impacting telecommunications. When you're at war, you just have much better ways of doing that by bombing substations, by bombing uh, telecommunications nodes and so forth to, to achieve your, your ultimate success. Nonetheless, uh, Ukraine says that it did stop them from achieving their broader objectives, right, and were, were able to actually limit this thing. I, I personally believe that part of it, right, uh, because if they were just going to lie through their teeth, they wouldn't have copped to the, you know, substation outages even in a confidential memo, right? So that, that sort of gives a little bit of credibility to the broader thing. Adam, what did you make of this whole event? I thought it was interesting to contrast with, you know, the previous attacks on power infrastructure in Ukraine and and see what has changed in terms of the ability to detect and respond to it. Um, you know, this clearly, you know, if there was some degree of outage, you know, the fact that, as Dimitri said, they responded very quickly comes from practice. And I suppose this, you know, does, does emphasise the utility of drilling these sorts of things, you know, exercising response. Uh, it's also, I'm curious as to, you know, to what extent international partners were involved uh, you know, obviously the Ukrainians have said, you know, that uh, you know, ESET was involved uh, in working with them um, with this. But, you know, you do wonder who else is in there helping out. I would imagine, you know, if I were Western cyber people, I would be really interested to see, you know, you know get up there in the middle of a Russian op. You know, it's got to be good intel. Uh, you know, if they're throwing the kitchen sink at it, it's a really great place to go observe how the Russians are operating and, you know, uh, get some good data. So, you know, the, the more that they burn their tooling uh, on attacks that seem ineffective from the outside, I guess the better for the West, right? One of my favourite little crazy side note things uh, through this whole thing has been a tweet from a guy who claims, he probably is, I don't know, claims to be like a former like SEAL Team 6 guy who's published an infographic saying that the Ukrainians sent like attack helicopters to go and like fire rockets at these at these hackers. I mean, no one has confirmed this, like 99% chance like this is total bullshit. But it's fun. It's fun bullshit. Um, Dimitri, I know you're following uh, everything Ukraine very, very closely. What did you make of this? Well, look, there is a lot of contradictory information about that attack. The Russians had claimed that that attack occurred back uh, on April 15th. And, you know, they called it a war crime. They showed pictures of a four-year-old in a hospital that, that was, uh, they said, purportedly injured in that uh, operation. The Ukrainians have denied it, and they actually published an intercept video the husband was calling the wife. The wife was saying, oh, my God, did you see that they uh, hit this village? And the husband's saying that was actually our side uh, so that we can bl- blame it on the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians are denying that this ever happened to begin with. 
And I find it very, very dubious that there would be such an operation cross-border just in response to cyber attack. And more importantly, I find it very dubious that you have elite Russian cyber operators living in a minor village uh, in a border town in, uh, you know, across the border from Ukraine versus... Come on. I mean, we all do our best hacking, right, from a little hut uh, on a farm near the border, right? I mean, it's just... Uh, Yeah, uh, I'm not sure how... How good the fiber connectivity is there. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know where this guy got this idea that this, like, because that's the thing. Like, there's the great little infographic pictures of the helicopters and everything. And it's like, where did you get this from? Anyway, I just thought that was a fun little sidebar. Uh, So, yeah, probably Uh, didn't happen. Go on, Adam. I felt that my interpretation of the credibility of this was a little bit damaged by the bit where he spells precision wrong in his (laughs) title. That uh, that uh, yeah probably uh, probably is a bit of an indicator there, bit of a red flag as we uh, like <laughs> yeah. to say in the twenty first century. Uh, what else have we got here? Oh, something I just had to mention. It's not something we need to talk deeply about, but uh, Tom wrote about this in last week's newsletter. But uh, <laughs> the Ukrainian intelligence service initially spun up a Telegram channel for people to knock on like the Russian soldiers in their area, so they'd like jump into this Telegram channel and send the pictures of the Russian troops and whatever, along with movements and. Then the intelligence service would geolocate them and then, you know, dispatch the Bayraktars to go to go blow them up. Uh, they've since actually integrated this uh, this type of function into their official government app. So like where I live, we've got the, you know, services New South Wales app where you can pay your car registration. And, you know, d- uh, during the height of the pandemic, you would use it to check into venues and things like that. And now you can use it to, it's like, it's like Pokemon Go, but for Russian soldiers, Pokemon Go, uh, <laughs> Russia, droning Russian soldiers, you know, got to drone them all uh, is basically the idea here. Isn't that, isn't that just an, an amazing way to sort of crowdsource on-the-ground intelligence about troop movements. I just think that's, you know, it's just really clever. And it made me think, too, uh, about how early in the pandemic we were all talking about, like, Bluetooth contact tracing and stuff like that when it turned out the the solution largely was around, you know, check-in apps and things like that. And they've applied that same sort of logic to to an, a pretty tricky and wicked intelligence problem. I, I just thought it was brilliant. Dimitri, you, you had something to well, say there. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the this is the new modern warfare where you're using open source intelligence and aggregating it. But there is risk to that, and you know, some of the uh, information that's coming out about the massacres in Bucha and other places in Ukraine, we now know that one of the things that they're doing is they're grabbing phones from civilians, they're checking if they have the SAP on, if they have Telegram uh, on with a channel where they've submitted uh, information in the past, and then they just execute those people. So. It is absolutely not without risk, given the rat mm. of the Russian military's propensity to commit war crimes. Well, yes, that is something to keep in mind, Dimitri. Uh, you are you are quite right. Moving on, and look, and and here's the thing, right? We've got m- more ICS stuff to talk about. It's like we've seen more action, more headlines, more interesting headlines around industrial control system security issues over the last couple of weeks. Like I've never seen so many in such a short period of time. Uh, it looks like U.S. authorities have unpicked. Uh, a campaign known as Pipe Dream. Now, this was this initially popped up as an alert from U.S. government. I, I can't remember if it was DHS or which particular agency it was. It, it was joint. Yeah. Joint. Okay. Okay. So there was a joint alert that went out talking about these, uh, you know, tools and capabilities. Dimitri, what do we actually know about this one? Has it been used in the wild? Do we know anything about where U.S. authorities might have obtained this malware from, or you know, what, and 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 what is this malware designed to do? Why are we talking about it? So this is actually not one piece of malware. It's actually five different components that are tightly integrated to execute a variety of really sophisticated attacks, specifically against the Schneider uh, electric PLCs, programmer logic controllers, as well as the Omron ones. A bunch of those PLCs are used in the energy sector, in the LNG space in particular, but they are actually used fairly broadly as well. Uh, But there's no evidence that they've been used uh, to actually attack anyone uh, my understanding is that this was not picked up uh, from an incident response or a victim. Uh, obviously, as you can imagine, uh, the U.S. intelligence community does a variety of collections uh, operations on adversaries to try to figure out what they may be up to before they even launch these types of attacks. And occasionally that type of information gets released about what the capabilities may be. So you're saying, you're, saying, you're saying someone pinched it, right? Like you're saying some U.S. government agency likely pinched it from, I don't know, who, who do we think it is? Is it, is it the Russians? Is it, uh, you know, the Chinese? 
the U.S. government has not attributed publicly. Um, I think it's highly, highly likely to to be uh, Russian intelligence. Uh, and uh, yes, it's one of those things where you really get the benefit of information sharing from the government because this is something that the industry, of course, would not be able to discover on its own and uh, and and being able to to analyze it. Uh, correctly. One of the most interesting things about this uh, malware is that it actually uh, implemented some of these uh, industrial protocols that are used uh, by these PLCs like the Codasys protocol, Modbus, and some of the others, so that it can actually talk to the controllers directly when it's deployed on the network and issue commands to them. A lot of these protocols have very little security built in, uh, pretty much no authentication. So once you're on the network and you can speak the language, it's easy for you to start operating and issue commands. And that's really kind of how you should be thinking about this toolkit is that it's a uh, very useful swift ar- army knife uh, of capabilities to launch a variety of attacks against these PLCs. Now, Adam, I know you love yourself a little bit of ICS uh, shenanigans. Um, what did you make of it? I thought this looked like a pretty interesting example of what defending forward is meant to look like. You know, if we can go mm. out and nick people's tools uh, and burn them in yeah, advance. Instead, instead of dumping like five-year-old North Korean malware. Yes, exactly, <laughs> right? This is actually legit useful. Um, and, you know, obviously the, there's a bunch of work that goes into building these kinds of frameworks and having them burnt is a very real cost. Uh, and I guess, you know, we've spent the last... I know what five ten years you know preparing the battle space everyone getting into the positions to be in everyone else's ICS networks so that they can carry out effects when it's necessary but you know and that all the ways you can break in uh, are relatively well understood and difficult to solve but like burning the action on objectives tooling in advance like that seems smart uh, and I'm I'm big into this this is cool this is good work yeah, now Recorded Future actually has a report out saying that uh, Chinese operators are all over India's power grid and a lot of this activity dates to, you know, roughly around the time uh, Indian and Chinese soldiers were clubbing each other to death uh, on the border. This is just the world we live in now, isn't it? Where every time tensions go up, this sort of preparation uh, tends to happen in, in the ICS world. I do feel like we're kind of maybe at a bit of a tipping point where we might see some real attacks go down. But then, you know, you look at this Ukraine example where they were able to, you know, to a degree at least, thwart uh, Russia's plans, you know, because obviously Russia was trying to do more than, uh, you know, take down a couple of substations. So... I don't know. It's just everything seems a little bit up in the air at the moment. Adam, what do you make of of this one? I think this dovetails really nicely with the conversation about Ukraine because the fact that we are focusing on everybody's on power infrastructure um, and everyone kind of uses the same technology and the same tools and most corporates that run critical infrastructure are built out of the same, you know, Windows network environments and things. So there is, you know... Everyone needs to be prepared, right? Because as Dimitri says, you know, doing coordinated ops between, you know, the cyber world and and the kinetic, right? And if things kick off between, you know, India and and China or India and Pakistan, um, you know, you have to be in position in advance. But then there's this tension because everyone uses the same tooling and the same techniques and the same sets of PLCs from from Siemens or Schneider or whoever, um, that, you know, you risk burning your capability, in, in doing the necessary preparation. And this, like the fact that we're talking about this, the fact we've seen there that this is being seen is because of the rest of the focus on ICS and control systems in other, other you know, parts of the world. So it does kind of change, like if you're China now, and this seemed like routine preparation two years ago or whenever, you know, the, as you say, when they were clubbing each other, uh, like it's now riskier than it was. And I thought that was an interesting, you know, the yeah. fact that we're reporting on this is an interesting yeah. tie-up, right? Well, and that's the thing, right? You wonder, because everyone says, oh, this stuff scales. And with everything that we're seeing over the last couple of weeks, you, you sort of wonder, well, does it, you know? I mean, I think the you know the fact that we're talking so much about ICS in the front half of this show is a suggestion that things have changed, right? It isn't quite as easy or pervasive or as straightforward to do. Like maybe the stuff's straightforward to do against if you're targeting one country in isolation, but when we're dealing with global geopolitics where there's a whole bunch of people targeting a whole bunch of stuff and everyone basically has to solve the same problems yeah then you end up with similar solutions and then that increases the risk to the longevity of those solutions so you know u.s burning russian techniques is also going to you know burn capability of a chinese well this is this is why i actually i actually want to push back a little bit on, on something dimitri said where he's saying well integrated operations are hard right I mean, you look at the Viasat thing, 
that was definitely an integrated operation, right? The the idea was to hobble a battlefield tool used by Ukrainians with a cyber attack on the day of an invasion, right? So that that and that is the most useful. I can't believe that this one isn't getting more coverage, right? Because I think it's probably the most useful cyber attack we've seen uh, in wartime that's sort of been publicly disclosed, right? To me, this is an extremely interesting attack and much more interesting than anything we've seen so far in the ICS space, right? And that was an integrated operation that would have had at least some effect. I mean, it didn't appear to do the Russians very much uh, good uh, in the end because they got chopped up pretty good, but it was certainly a, a sensible hack. Let's put it that way. Uh, but Dimitri, I mean, you've you've been all over the US media over the last week. You were on 60 Minutes the other day uh, talking about all of this stuff. What, what's your thoughts on how this is going to play out? Because I, I, I get the sense you feel like we're being a little bit complacent now uh, because Russia's been quite busy dealing with near abroad stuff, but the attacks against uh, the West are definitely coming. That's what you seem to be saying. Yeah, this is one of the things I predicted even before the war started, of course, that there would be retaliation for the sanctions. I do think that, uh, one, they've been busy in Ukraine, but two, and probably more importantly, they truly believe in Russia that the sanctions will come off as soon as they end this operation. Um, And obviously, they're trying to end it before May 9th, Victory Day in Europe holiday um, in Russia. Um, Unclear if they'll be able to actually accomplish those objectives on the ground or if they can do so at all. But nevertheless, once they realize that the sanctions are really not coming off and that the Russian economy over the long term is in really terrible shape, um, that's when I think they're going to try to think about ways to uh, ratchet up the pressure on the U.S. consumer, U.S. voter, same in Europe, uh, trying to find ways to increase gas prices even further. They're already at incredibly high levels and attacks that mess with pipelines, energy storage facilities, LNG terminals and the like can all have that effect, even if the underlying sort of impact is mitigated quickly. As we've seen with Colonial, people can panic, media adds on to that. There are huge lines at the gas stations and so forth, and, and that can impact Biden's political prospects. And, and that's what they're really giddy about in Moscow. They talk every day on Russian television about his approval ratings and how they've been going down because of inflation and gas prices. And, and, and they want to add up both from just a re- retaliatory perspective, right, to punish him for the sanctions. Um, but also they believe probably incorrectly that if they can uh, push on this more, if they add more pressure, then Biden would cave. I, I don't think that will happen, but but th- that's how they're thinking in Moscow right now. Yeah, I don't think they're. I don't. I, I don't think that's how it's going to play out either. Uh, you had an interesting idea though, in terms of like pushing back against this. Uh, you know, we always talk about deterrence not really working in this uh, in this space, but you did have an interesting idea, which is essentially, hey, why don't we just DPR them if they if these attacks get you know too too much. DPR them as a as a defensive measure for a little while, see if they call it, and if they don't, just keep DPRing them. Um, and, and it's interesting because we've seen over the last few years Russia making all of these steps towards trying to be this, uh, you know, have their own sovereign internet and stuff. I mean, it looks like that might actually become a reality if they if they push their luck. Yeah, so it's important to put my my um, recommendation in context. So this would only be done in response to major attacks that cause severe damage to U.S critical infrastructure, right? And the question is, what do you do then? And I don't think that the right approach is to actually retaliate against Russian critical infrastructure and try to destroy it. And that, that's when you really get into escalatory tit for tat. We hit them, they hit us back and so forth. And who knows how that ends up. But if you sort of want to send a strong message of we can really severely punish you, right? Take Russia offline for an hour, uh, it won't cause any severe damage, but it will send a clear message to literally the entire population from the top down of what the impact might be when, uh, you know, uh, media is down, telecommunications are down, uh, you know, lots of lots of infrastructure that is now solely dependent on Internet connectivity uh, is either to completely down or working intermittently and uh, causing cascading issues for an hour, not for long, uh, as a demonstration. Right. And to send them a clear message we can escalate this really high. Stop. Don't go any further. That that was the context for my proposal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't seen this before. 
So we might see it and then we'll know if they take that warning seriously. But let's see. Uh, now, we've got a bunch of stories in the show notes here about, uh, you know, some of the stuff happening behind the scenes with energy companies uh, trying to uh, work closely with the Department of uh, U.S. Department of Energy. They want the DOE to take point on some of these uh, defensive measures. Uh, so there's a bunch of additional reading in this week's show notes. I don't think we really need to talk through uh, those stories. Uh, but we do have a couple of interesting stories here. Uh, about botnet takedowns, right? And one of them, uh, which is really interesting, is it's a botnet that Adam and uh, you and I discussed on the show. The um, the botnet GRU was assembling that was made up of like WatchGuard and Asus firewalls. Uh, DOJ, under Rule 41, not to be confused with Rule 34, uh, under Rule 41, went out and just vaped this botnet. They basically got a search warrant that allowed them to like, you know, remove this malware and they just took it down. Uh, I think it's a really interesting uh, action. I think it's a great action. I just find it funny that it's the DOJ and not Cyber Command doing this sort of thing. What did you make of it, Adam? Well, I mean, we've seen, you know, a bunch of hand-wringing over the years about what we would do in the event of a botnet, whether, you know, whether it was ethical to go into other people's computers and, and take it out, either as private the citizens or as... The pearl clutching was dumb 10 years ago and it's dumb now. Yeah. And I thought the um, it's interesting that, because there's been a couple of stories in the news list about this, and one of them frames it as you know, oh my god, the American government broke into people's watch guards and you know removed their sovereign citizen malware that they were entitled to have, and then the other you know <laughs> take on it was well, watch guards shipped an update that removed it, kind of thing. And both of these things can kind of be true, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously this is a you know an effective action and taking out something that you know is being built by GIU who've done a bunch of you know. Uh, a bunch of useful things for their own government in the past taken out in advance makes a lot of sense uh but yeah it, it has certainly spun that pearl clutching hand wringing sort of angle uh in a way that i guess we haven't really seen in a couple of years it's been a while since someone has whinged about a botnet takedown in that way um so but yeah I don't know, maybe this one's right. a little bit different because it was what do they say left of bang that's what that's the word they like to use yeah 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 and we've also seen news that microsoft has uh shut down a botnet that is linked to gru i'm not actually sure if it's the same botnet but you know there's been botnet takedowns uh they have also microsoft also disrupted a uh, crime botnet called Zloader or Zloader for our American friends. Um, so there's just been so much like botnet takedown action out there. Oh, and for bonus content, we've got a story from Ars Technica written by Dan Gooden about how WatchGuard were kind of sneaky about like they didn't explicitly <laughs> disclose the critical flaw that was used by GRU to own all of their customers, which is very on brand uh, for WatchGuard, wouldn't you say, Adam? <laughs> it kind of, kind of is. Well, in, in fairness to them, they may have been working and almost certainly have been working with the U.S. government on this for some months. And there's probably uh, a desire to keep it secret and not get a CV in advance to blow this, right? So uh, there are probably operational constraints on them that may have been impacted it. Uh, now, just uh, I've, I've thrown a link into the to the show notes to uh, this story from CyberScoop. We, we, we can't really talk about it because it's a little bit vague, uh, but the headline reads, DHS investigators say they foiled cyber attack on undersea internet cable in Hawaii. Uh, but as I say, the story's like, oh, yeah, some attacks against a server involved in, you know, managing undersea cables or something, and we're not really uh, particularly clear on what's happened there, but I just wanted to get this into the show uh, in case this one blows up, and you know we're gonna we're gonna talk about it more uh, down the track. Uh, but Dimitri, I believe you're sticking uh, with us for the next few stories, and then um, uh, and then you're gonna scoot. Uh, but it turns out the United States government has attributed uh, a a crypto hack, a five hundred and forty million dollar uh, crypto hack, to uh, North Korea. So this is the U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, uh, has officially attributed uh, this hack. Uh, but I'm led to believe that uh, the word on the street was already that North Korea was behind this one. Yeah, uh, it was well known. And of course, we have seen the North Koreans target cryptocurrency exchanges and other players in the DeFi community for years now, stealing cryptocurrency uh, by the tens of millions. Uh, this was one of the larger ones, but uh, fairly well known on the street that this was indeed the DPRK. And look, you know, they're, we know that they're using these, these funds to finance the military, finance the nuclear program. The North Koreans operate in a really interesting way where, uh, probably unlike any other government, where they're given a mission 
but then they're not really given the budget to actually execute that mission to, to the full budget. And they're still expected to complete the assigned objective. Um, they just have to get creative about uh, how they're going to raise the money to actually execute it. And that's why you're seeing them engage in all these sorts of cybercrime, along with arms trafficking and uh, drug trafficking and everything else that we've seen from North Korea over the last uh, number of yeah, decades. Yeah, you, you got to wonder how many of these crypto tokens and stolen bitcoins wind up. Uh, much like Russia's military modernization budget, you wonder how much of this stuff is going towards chalets and uh, and uh, mega yachts <laughs> in Cyprus, right? Well, you, you got to pay for a nice condo in Malaysia, Patrick, right? Uh, you know, there's expenses <laughs> yeah. uh, that come with uh, cyber operations that are really necessary. Adam, I know every time we report on a story like this, it just, you know, it just blows your mind because it's such it's so it's such the cyber dystopian future yarn this one it, it really is and i think like when i read this the thing that occurred to me is we should probably rebrand cryptocurrency people to be like members of kim jong-un's patreon because like they're just you know <laughs> straight up you know providing funding for his nuclear program so yeah let's rebrand them they're like patreon supporters of kim jong-un apologies to patreon the company it's a verb now. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that's, a, I think, a better fit for them. Well, and, and the North Koreans have been busy because they've been going a little bit wild uh, targeting the chemical sector, uh, according to this report by uh, Jonathan Grigg over at The Record. And uh, the US government is offering five, a $5 million reward for info on some of their operators. Dimitri, just before, before you sign off and leave us, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this because obviously, you know, as a co-founder of CrowdStrike, you know, you spend a lot of time tracking these various groups. It really seems like the North Koreans, you know, they still do some pretty trash campaigns. Uh, but lately, you know, you, you read some reports on what they get up to and some of their some of their stuff is pretty good now. Uh, is, that, is that your sense as well, that the North Koreans have got some extremely skilled operators in their ranks these days? Oh, I've always believed that. I mean... I, I've believed for a long time now that North Koreans are the most innovative actor in cyberspace. They were the first ones to really do, uh, you know, a dump and leak campaign, what we saw in, in Sony. They were first ones to very aggressively adopt wiper malware back in the late 2000s. Uh, so they, they've done a number of really, really innovative things, and the tradecraft has gotten way better. I mean, even if you look at something like the Bank of Bangladesh, yeah, they screwed up the wire transfers, but the actual infiltration of that network and the way they knew about the surveillance and the uh, uh, the the uh, checks there that would be in place in the bank. Uh, for I, I, I actually I actually do know someone who who went up against them. Um, they work at a bank and they actually went up against this crew and they were like, yeah, it was it was horrifying. Like it was a, it was a it was Very hard. it was tough. No no doubt. And look, practice makes perfect, right? And the reality is that these guys do a ton of operations. Uh, they've been doing that for a long time against South Koreans, and then they expanded much broader than that. And uh, you know, you learn with everyone. Um, that you do, and not all of them are successful, but uh, from every failure, you learn even more than from the success. So absolutely, they're a top-tier actor now, no question about it. Yeah, I, I uh, got a message from someone recently uh, who was linking through to a report saying that they were using some you know, very advanced O'Day in some campaign, and they're asking, oh, does this seem credible? And I'm like, well, they got a whole bunch of uh, people whose job it is to try to steal O'Day, right? Like we've seen campaigns targeting a lot of researchers. I'm like it's totally plausible that they've got some really advanced stuff. They may have developed it. They may have stolen it, but it seems like, yeah, it seems like they're pretty smart about the way they do things. And it's certainly, yeah, they're able to fund themselves with a lot of this crypto and, stuff. And by the way, the research campaign itself, right? Targeting the researchers to try to steal their research in zero days before they're even used. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliance, right? Just in coming up with it, it the boldness of going after top-notch security researchers, uh, you know, that, that takes some, uh, uh, some guts there to, to, to execute those types of operations. And they've been at the forefront of so many innovations in the space from an offense perspective. There you go. Innovators. The Dmitry Olperovich Innovation Award for APT Behaviour goes this week to North Korea, the Democratic People's uh, Republic of Korea. Uh, so, Dmitry, I think that's where you're uh, jumping off the old risky biz uh, train. Uh, so thanks a lot for, for joining us to talk through some of the um, uh, some of the cyber topics this week that touch on, on geopolitics. It's always great to have you along uh, as, a, as an additional co-host. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, Adam, uh, you know, there's always typically a big breach uh, when I take a week off. And yeah, we got one here, which is a whole bunch of OAuth user tokens 
uh, issued to third party uh, to GitHub's third party OAuth integrators Heroku and Travis CI uh, got pinched somehow. I have no idea what's going on in this story. Please walk me through it. So GitHub has published a thing saying that you know there was some kind of intrusion uh, that related to these third-party uh, integrations for authentication. So Heroku is a, a cloud platform uh, run by Salesforce, uh, and I've not actually used their GitHub integration, but I mean, I the I imagine the mechanism here is that you know you use Heroku's tooling to pull code out of your GitHub to deploy into Heroku's environment. So there's auth integration where it can operate GitHub uh, on your behalf. Um, and it sounds like it's some somewhere along here there was a breach of either the like signing key material or a bunch of user tokens themselves uh, were taken. It's unclear whether it's kind of from Heroku. GitHub says like it's not those weren't they weren't taken from them, and it's kind of left to well they must have come from Heroku, I suppose. The Travis CI bit is also a little bit unclear. I think Travis have now said that that whilst they were also involved that maybe it was Heroku's fault. I was like, anyway, net result of this was access to people's GitHubs were obtained by an attacker who then used it to download source code and other things looking for other credentials. So it's clearly someone who has figured out how to, you know, do lateral movement in cloud environments by stealing tokens and key material and whatever else. And it sounds like uh, there was some access to like uh, GitHub's NPM infrastructure, um, that handles you know that kind of part of the package supply chain for for the JavaScript node environment, but I'm still kind of not really clear what happened. Despite having read the posts from GitHub, the posts from Heroku, the posts from Travis CI, either way, it seems like they've responded, revoked a bunch of tokens, and maybe you know, people will have to think a bit more carefully about those you know about those systems. And the advice in general is be cautious about what you authorize you know for access to your accounts. You know, anytime you're providing uh, machine-driven authentication, you know, where there's not two-factor involved because it's machine-to-machine auth. That, yeah, well, you that can't you can't use you know. you know you can't ask uh, your build server to place its thumb on a YubiKey, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. And it was interesting that the Travis CI post uh, described this as a uh, an individual who used a man in the middle to a FA attack, leveraging a third-party integration token, and I'm. I've been working in this industry 20-something years. Yeah, I that's a, what that means. That's a hell of a word salad right there. You know, Do you think they're trying yeah, to obfuscate exactly deliberately right. or do you think they don't know what no, happened? No, I or think you, it's yeah. just that modern auth is, is that complicated that no one really knows how it works anymore. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I an expert, do not know what happened. Yeah, okay. Despite okay. having read all the information. But, I mean, that, that's kind of the point, right, that modern auth and integration between platforms in a cloud environment is just that complicated yeah. that who knows what happened and what it means. Yeah, yeah, great. Glad we could, uh, yeah. glad we could clear that up for everyone. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> now, uh, we've just got a bit of a ransomware wrap because, you know, and this is the thing, like the record have been uh, doing this periodic thing where they publish like a graph with the number of sort of reported ransomware uh, attacks and things like that. And they, they try to glean some trends. I mean, it, it it looks a little bit like noise, you know. They're saying, "Oh, you know, uh, organizations are being bombarded with ransomware again after a brief pause." And you look, and it's, you know, if you look at this graph, it looks a little bit like noise. But I still think it's good that they're sticking with this because, you know, who knows? In time, we might be able to glean some uh, trends uh, from it. Uh, but yeah, apparently, uh, Black Cat have uh, attacked Florida International University, uh, North Carolina A and T hit with ransomware as well. What else have we got? Oh, now this this is an interesting one from Emma Vale at the record. Apparently, uh, some group who really don't like Russia uh, are ransomwareing Russian systems. So let's see if that actually spirals into a problem for them because it could. A lot of people in Ukraine know how to ransomware stuff. Well, well, exactly. That was my first thought. It was like, is this a new crew, like, is this, you know, kind of new people standing up under the guise of ransomware, you know, and going to hit Russia? Or is this split off bits of existing, I mean, you know, mature ransomware operators that are maybe Ukrainians? Well, it could be disgruntled former members of some of the established Russian crews, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely right. So it could be either of those things. And But regardless, it's still pretty interesting. And seeing Russia on the other end of this, like, it's kind of hard not to be a bit pleased about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, given how much ransomware grief we've taken 
you know, over the last five, ten years. Like, a little bit of comeuppance feels good, even though, you know, we wouldn't want to wish that on anybody, and it still sucks to be the sysadmins and everybody else that has to deal with it, but... I mean, it's funny It's funny when they're ransomwareing, you know, Russian government departments. It's less funny when they're ransomwareing hospitals. Exactly, yes, right? I mean, the, 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 it's still conflicting to see, you know, computers and networks abused like that, even when it is, you know, in a country that's, you know, nominally our enemy, but it's the government that's our enemy, not the people. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> Joseph Cox has a great story up here at Vice uh, talking about how T-Mobile hired someone to help sort of clean up a, you know, uh, a leak. Uh, they, they hired someone who went and negotiated exclusive access to the data that was stolen from them. And, of course, you know, they paid their monies and, uh, you know, the access was not exclusive in the end. <laughs> I know. I am shocked. I mean, in this case, it's something like, what, a couple hundred thousand dollars U.S., that was paid so you know compared to some ransoms we've seen uh you know not not the biggest but yeah it's interesting that this was kind of couched as well we bought it on raid forums you know as a as a buyer that just wanted exclusive access as opposed to kind of paying a ransom even though they were trying to achieve the same thing um but yeah either way not very effective no turns out yes those those uh those criminals didn't live up to their word which is um you know shocked i tell you shocked (laughs) A pretty serious bug uh, surfaced. Uh, To be honest, I'm surprised this one didn't get more attention, but there's like a pretty epic RPC bug in Windows. Yeah, we haven't seen one of these this good in a while. Um, So this is a, you know, if you can reach Windows file servers or other similar things, then like onwards to code execution, which, you know, has happened in the past. MS-06040, MS-08067, both very much, you know, classic bugs in this vein that were huge deals for a long, long time. I think, you know, we have as a network and as a, you know, as an internet kind of gotten better at not allowing SMB through the border, but inside people's environments, I mean, this is probably going to be a bug that uh, pen testers will be kicking for a while, but... The thing that immediately sprang to my mind when reading about this was NotPetya, right? Like this is a NotPetya style vulnerability. It is, yes, exactly. And, you know, the, the world has changed a little bit since we saw the early Windows attacks. But, yeah, in the sorts of environments that NotPetya went through, like, things don't move quickly. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I, it's bad. It's always a bad time to be a Windows admin. Uh, and I did see someone on Twitter joking that, you know, the best indicator of compromise these days is, do you have exchange? Yes, no. Yeah. <laughs> you know, on-prem exchange as an indicator of compromise. Um, but, yeah, like, SMB bugs like this uh, have historically had a really big impact and a very, very long tail. Daniel Schell, who is the CTO over at Airlock Digital, has done some research that I just think is glorious. Uh, He's doing uh, VSTO office files, right? So basically you can load these, uh, what do they call them? Microsoft Office extensions or something. Uh, You can put them in a DocX, uh, host a whole bunch of .NET crap uh, on the internet that the document will grab if the user allows it. Um, there's a few gotchas with this. Like, So basically what this will allow you to do is send someone a, a Microsoft Office file, even when you've disabled macros, and you can get code exec and spring up uh, Cobalt Strike and whatever. Pretty sweet attack. Uh, there's a few gotchas here. One is that uh, this attack won't work if if the document has the mark of the web, right? So you need to send someone like an ISO container that they open and then they run the file and whatever. But nonetheless, this is some very, very sweet research. What did you think of this, Adam? Yeah, but it certainly felt like, you know, macros v2, the um, VSTO functionality in, in Office has kind of replaced for a lot of people what they would have traditionally done with with macros and of course comes with some you know pretty familiar problems uh, as a result of that there's a little bit more control perhaps than than you know classic word and office macros used to have um, but yeah anything that you can go from open a doc file to code exec you know even if it does need a you know a certificate or it needs you know it needs to be signed or it needs to you know have some other prerequisites like yeah well, i think i think i think in this case daniel just went and got a certificate from a forum which was nvidia yeah, or yeah, something but, and it worked fine yeah, yeah exactly right it's not getting a certificate is not a huge bar um and we've certainly seen plenty of you know signed office docs and that kind of thing in the past for, for macros so yeah like this is a this is a big thing and we will no doubt see this being used in the wild i'm i'm actually surprised that we haven't seen it being used because it seems a pretty like, yeah it's the logical success of macros why wouldn't you expect it to be abused in the same way so yeah good good work pulling the thread together and you know explaining it to us and then we can go weaponize it and uh Get some get some fishes for code exec. Good times. Yeah. Well, when I tweeted about this, I did get a reply uh, in my mentions from someone who said, "Yeah, we use this 
technique on engagements and it's pretty good. <laughs> so I don't think Daniel's the nice. first, but uh, certainly I haven't seen anyone else uh, writing about it. It's uh, to, to this degree anyway. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a good blog post. It's in this week's show notes. Check it out. Uh, Jonathan Grieg over at The Record uh, has a story up here. Uh, where a researcher has found some crypto mining malware that that is like serverless. It's AWS Lambda crypto mining software, which I find very interesting. But unfortunately, we don't have time to really discuss it this week. But I mean, did you see that and just think, cool? It, it made it made me chuckle at the very yeah. least, and the idea of just you know like hit a whole bunch, deploy it, hit a whole bunch of lambdas until they run out of credit, make some Bitcoin. It's, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, why not, right? Um, Apple, uh, the Daily Swiggers, the Daily Swiggers reporting Apple paid out thirty six k in a bug bounty for HTTP request smuggling flaws, which you think you know. I mean, Apple is very good at a lot of stuff, but you you know you just sort of think, how did you not? How did you not catch that? Was that your was that your thinking as well? Yeah, it seems like the sort of thing they should be able to catch, but some of Apple's web infrastructure and plumbing and stuff is pretty old and creaky. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not and, and complicated, like multi-layered and complicated. So I'm not surprised these sorts of bugs uh, are there. But I mean, it's Apple. You kind of need to do a bit better than that. Yeah. So it, it affected service for business.apple.com, school.apple.com, and mapsconnect.apple.com, and it's always going to be those ones that you haven't got around to yet that uh, are going to get you right. And it looks like yeah, that's what happened yeah. in this case. Uh, and Q Benny Hill theme. Uh, we've had 11 million bucks stolen from something <laughs> called Elephant Money, which is a DeFi platform. Uh, what else? Wonder Hero game disabled after hackers steal 320,000 in cryptocurrency. Another one from Jonathan Grieg over at the record. So, you know, like every week these days, uh, we just close out the week talking about uh, all of these, you know, crypto collapses and disasters. We've got another one uh, from Lorenzo over at uh, Motherboard uh, talking about some crypto stablecoin that collapsed after a $182 million hack, uh, tanked its value. It was supposed to be pegged to the US dollar, uh, tanked its value from $1 to $0.15, cents, so uh, not not so hot for... Um, Stable as. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm going to close it out this week just by recommending a long read. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a little old now. It's from April 6th. It was written by... By, uh, by Brian Krebs, and uh, the headline is The Original APT, Advanced Persistent Teenagers. And it's just a nice write-up on the types of, of hacking that the kids are up to these days, and it's a, it's a fun read. Yeah, it was. It, you know, talked a bit about the lapses crew, but I mean, it's equally applicable to a bunch of the other, you know, classic teenage hackers who are just, you know, really focused on getting stuff done in a way that people who do it for money, do it for a living, maybe aren't. So yeah, it's a great read. Well, mate, that's actually it for this week's news. Uh, it's been a great time, as always, to uh, to talk through the week's events or the last two weeks' events with you, my friend, and uh, I'll look forward to chatting to you again next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Pat, and, yeah, look forward to next week. That was Adam Boileau and uh, Dimitri Alperovich there. Big thanks to them for that. Before we continue, I'd just like to quickly mention that Catalan Kimpanu has started working with us this week, and uh, so far we've been working on setting up the format of the regular news digest he'll be writing for Risky Biz subscribers, and we, you know, we hope to start publishing those pretty soon. Uh, the first like proof of concept edition he's done, uh, we've been sort of passing around to trusted advisors for feedback, and yeah, I'm, you know, it's great, right? So everybody's going to really enjoy the product uh, that Catalan is going to be uh, producing for us. And um, yeah, stay tuned. Okay, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Scott Kufer of Nucleus Security and Jared Semrau of Mandiant. Nucleus aggregates vulnerability information in your environment, ingesting vulnerability scan data from a bunch of different products and normalizing it. Uh, and now you'll be able to cross-check that information against Mandiant's data on what is being actively exploited out there. Here's Scott Kufer to kick off the interview. I mean, we've come on here many, many a time and pitched how we are a, you know, the working man's tool and we do all of these things around routing and automation and uh, basically analysis and the analyst workflow. And we were thinking, well, man, it would be really great to be able to start adding that additional context that, that we are missing right now, right? We have basically two of the three legs of the stool that we, that we think really factor into a really robust kind of proactive vulnerability management program. We've got all the business context and the asset management and the org-based vulnerability management kind of information. We've got the vulnerability context, but we do not have the threat context that we can use to say, well, let's actually start layering all of this together to build a really great business context for what we should prioritize. And then like just start, start kind of pushing that through our 
existing automation or existing routing, existing tracking. And then that could actually start to turn Nucleus into a more robust kind of automation engine for proactive decision-making in the analysis process. Yes, yeah, so so, I'm, I'm guessing this is yeah. about adding that missing column, right? You got CVSS, uh, but you, you haven't necessarily had a column telling you how many people are actually out there using this bug at the moment. I'm guessing that's what this is really about. Exactly. It's about providing that additional context that really will let users decide, especially organizations as a whole, they can make the decision on how they want to prioritize and how they want to think about threat intelligence in the context of their vulnerability management programs. Now, people in the threat intelligence world love to speak, and it's, you know, I barely even know if this is a real word, but they love to speak about operationalizing uh, threat intelligence, right? And and so Jared Semrau is with us as well. He's from Mandiant. Um, Jared, I'm guessing, you know, from the Mandiant side, that's really what this is about, is a way to operationalize uh, some of the intelligence that you're collecting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, from from our perspective, I you know I've talked to many organizations, and while it would be great to sit here and say that you know every organization has the resources they need to address every vulnerability, that's just not the reality of of the world you know that we're living in. So what we're trying to do is exactly what you said: is we're trying to fill in the gap on the threat side of the equation. Um, you know, as an organization, we are lucky enough to be involved in just about every single large breach that matters out there. You know, we are helping uh, many customers uh, understand the threats to their environments. We have managed defense capabilities. We're managing their SOCs for them. Um, So we're seeing what's going on in the real world. And that's kind of a unique thing that we're trying to help provide here in this partnership is unlike a lot of organizations that can just speak to how bad something could be, we're providing that visibility into what is happening Um, And not just whether or not a vulnerability is being exploited, but really even pointing it back to by who and for what. Yeah, yeah. Being exploited to drop a crypto miner. Eh, you know, uh, it's like, okay, we'll we'll fix that one. But being exploited to ransomware entire organizations. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, so I'm guessing you, do you have some sort of, you know, impact score uh, per bug? Or I guess it's all context dependent, isn't it? Uh, we have a couple different uh, different ways that we we convey that to our customers. We do use CVSS for our customers that insist on using that. Um, I think it's a pretty limited uh, rating myself, but some people live and die by that. Um, but we also have other ones that really capture specifically just the threat. We have other ones that capture just the impact. Um, so we provide a couple different ways for customers to to leverage that data in the way they feel comfortable, but. Um, yeah, we're trying to capture all those things and help just kind of get to the ground truth of what's the real impact and what's the real threat that these vulnerabilities are going to pose to you. All right. So, Scott, how have you implemented this? I mean, is it the case that Mandiant identifies that some crew is burning down, uh, you know, the internet with some particular bug and that, uh, you know, that information gets into people's nucleus consoles somehow and then it, um, you know, it's out a priority list? Like, okay. tell us tell us what the, uh, you know, how what this looks like when it's operationalized. Sure. Uh, Mandiant was nice enough to kind of work with us on kind of coming to an optimal solution. Because if you look at kind of the other ways in the past that things have been, uh, specifically vulnerability intelligence has been operationalized, you know, you might drop it into like a Splunk dashboard or something like that, and you don't get a ton of extra context. But what we've essentially done is almost have like a Mandiant light kind of overlaid directly into the platform. So our idea wasn't to just boil everything down to a score. It was to say, okay, well, you have this vulnerability, that was found by this scanning tool. It exists on this asset with all this business context. And here are 27 additional threat intelligence fields that relate to that vulnerability that you can then basically pick and choose which fields you want to use to prioritize vulnerabilities a certain way, automatically set SLAs based on that, and then try to start figuring out what actually is the stuff that's going to burn your burn your house down. So, but how do you how do you surface the critical stuff? Like, is that some is that a part that you've worked? I mean, it's great to have the context there when you're in the console, you're looking at a particular bug. But you know, there's going to be a lot of information in those consoles. How do you actually surface the stuff that you need to care about most? Is there some sort of you know rules engine where some field exceeds this, then you know sound klaxons or you know how, how does it work? Exactly. Yeah, it's exactly as you just mentioned, right? So we have a full automation framework that was really designed to kind of automate all these different workflows. And so we basically just added all this additional context and fields that you can now use to make decisions as an organization. Because every organization wants to do things a little bit differently. As as Jared mentioned, some folks like to still use CVSS version 2, and that's what they want to stick to uh, without any sort of additional uh, context or anything there. And you know, as he so he said it better than I did in terms of the limitations there. But 
what we want to enable is users to make decisions on their own and then start automating it at scale, right? Because it's great to have all this data, as you said, but now it's just more data. And what we want you to be able to do is say, okay, well, we know that that needles in the haystack meet this specific criteria contextualized to us and what we care about, what our auditors care about or whoever. And so we want to use these five things as the basis for drop everything and fix those. There's critical and then there's like extra critical or ultra critical. I've, I've heard it named many different ways. You know, ultra critical. Score, yeah. It's ultra like critical. when you're running out of uh, superlatives, right? That's right. Hypercritical. <laughs> <laughs> so Jared, I want to, I want to ask you like how timely is this information usually, right? Because one of, one of the issues, and it's not limited to uh, threat intelligence about vulnerabilities, one of the issues with threat intelligence writ large uh, can be the, uh, I guess, the, the delays in the loop, right? When something happens by the time it gets, you know, to an incident or is detected or whatever and gets turned around as threat intel intelligence and then operationalized, you know, the attackers have moved on to a different set of tools or whatever. So, you know, how timely and relevant is this information going to be by the time it gets into someone's vuln management console? Now, the, the, the timeliness is obviously going to depend uh, in different circumstances, but our goal is always to get the data to our customers as fast as possible. Uh, we have tons of automation set up in which it's going to be scraping and pushing data within real time. Um, so usually within 24 hours when we get it. Uh, but there's other parts of the process that could take a little bit longer. You know, we have additional analysis that our analysts come in to provide additional context. Um, that can be anywhere from a day or two days, three days. But when it comes to some of our larger breach investigations that we as an organization do, you know, sometimes that data is going to come in a week after that incident happened or a month down the road. The point is when we get it and get it into a state that we can share, it, we're going to share it as fast as possible. Unfortunately, you know, we may not be there for the first person who gets hit, but our goal is hopefully there to get it before the second or third person gets hit and before yeah. uh, those tactics change. Yeah, well, attackers maybe don't move quite that fast, right? <laughs> so I think there is, you know, and I'm, I've certainly been someone who's, you know, criticized certain elements of, of threat intelligence on the on the timeliness side. But the fact is, yeah, I mean, if you if you're unpicking um, uh, C2 and, you know, various other IOCs that have been used recently, you know, chances are that's still useful information. If a group of attackers is having success with a bug chain, it's not like they're just going to, you know, move on to another one for no reason. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, what we typically see is you'll see that start in those limited targeted attacks and then over time they're going to keep branching that out until either it gets patched or it just gets to the point where it just doesn't offer the same value as another tool they have i mean they're not going to burn a zero day or just move on to another one for no reason you know they've got to have value and make sure they you know all that development resource gets counted for something now i mean we are here talking about how nucleus is going to use this information but i'm curious where else does this type of data tend to wind up how are organizations actually operationalizing this this data that you produce from our perspective, I mean, it really depends. Uh, we we mentioned earlier that, um, you know, there's a lot of Splunk dashboards that this lives in. Um, we have companies that are literally just spending threat intelligence analysts that are manually coming through this. Basically, anywhere that there is a system, uh, in most cases, connected to an API that you can pull this data into, the data probably lives. Uh, it just really depends on each individual's or, you know, organization, what they use. But admittedly, some of those platforms work better than, than others, which is why we're really excited about the Nucleus partnership, because this is a platform we think can help kind of make better use of it than uh, some of the other solutions we've seen. Yeah, I mean, do you have a partnership with some of the larger scanning firms, right? Because these companies, you look at their revenue, it's like, it's like half a billion dollars, some of them, right? So they're the big players and they're supposed to be doing this stuff. Is that something you do with them? Uh, we've had partnerships over the years um, and some of those relationships have come and gone. It's just hard to keep traction with them. They they see, you know, a lot of different people out there trying to play along with all the other different companies. But really what we want is somebody who sees us as a, a trusted partner and just not another part of the noise that they're adding to their... <laughs> yeah. So you're just totally confirming my vibe, um, which is that these guys are so complacent. And and I'm working with another company that's doing something a little bit relevant to vuln management. They've had a few ideas there that are spectacular. And you think, why on earth aren't the big scanning companies doing it? And there's a whole bunch of stuff where you can ask yourself, why aren't they doing it? It seems like they've got their their sort of protected revenue by being the incumbents. And they, they're not really interested in trying to uh, uh, innovate. I mean, I'm just being, just being frank, right? 
So, I mean, I mean, Patrick, from, from our perspective, I mean, there's a reason that nucleus exists, right? I mean, this whole, this whole post scan market where it's like, what do you actually do with the data really only exists because the scanning tools are unable to, to actually do that on their own. And there's so many different sets of data that it really didn't matter if the scanners did try to do that. Right. I mean, you look at the tenables and the rapid sevens, right? Rapid seven has been building their insight platform for years to try to kind of do some routing and SLA management and things like that. But, you know, when you're, when you're starting to look at, at a holistic solution where how do we get a handle across our enterprise, whether that's AppSec, vulnerability management, you know, SCA tools, cloud, you know, there's all these new CSPM tools out there that went from zero to 6 billion in 18 months and things like that. It's how do you actually keep up with managing all of that data? And, and that's where I think, you know, our sweet spot is, right? It's the, we, we take all that data, we organize it for you, and then we allow you to do something with it that at scale. And that's, that's something that the scanners are always going to have a really hard time doing, um, you know, from, well, I from just, I just, I mean, this is kind of what I get, uh, what I'm getting at. I think it's kind of nuts that they have just continued to focus on protecting their scanning revenue, as opposed to trying to create good management software, which is you know, probably where the money's going to be in the future. Anyway, that is all we have time for. Scott Cooford, Jared Semrau, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show to walk through the tie-up between Mandiant and uh, Mandiant Google, I think it's going to be, and, uh, and Nucleus. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thanks, Pat. Always a pleasure. That was Scott Cooper and Jared Semrau there. Big thanks to them for that. And you can find Nucleus Security at NucleusSec.com. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back next week with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Music.